0: If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. First of all, it's free, which for us is really important. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcast, and more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership, and it's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. So, download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to
1: get started.
0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Emergency Docs. I'm Dr. R. Please note that the content of this episode does not constitute medical advice but is purely for the purpose of education. This episode was supported by the National Geographic Society's Emergency Fund for Journalists. Today, we're talking to Dr. Tanya Dahl. Dr. Dahl is an emergency physician in Southern California who also works in rural medicine in Arizona, and she's also a wife and a mom of two. So welcome, Dr. Dahl. Hi, thanks for having me. So good to have you. (laughs) Happy to be here. So today we're going to talk a little bit about Balance and finding
1: balance. But first, tell me a little bit about your background.
0: Where do you grow up?
1: I grew up an army brat. So, where I grew up is kind of hard to say because I kind of grew grew up up everywhere. everywhere. (laughs) I was born in North Carolina at Fort Bragg. We, let's see, traveled, spent a couple years in Germany, spent a couple years in a few different places in Virginia, spent a couple years in Panama down in Central America, which was. An experience I could talk for hours about. So cool. Um, And then ended up middle school back in Arizona in my mom's hometown called Sierra Vista in Southern Arizona. And so when people ask me where I'm from, I normally say Sierra Vista, Arizona, because that's where I feel like my family is mm-hmm. and that's where my roots are. So I would say, yeah, that's kind of my early years. I didn't know you lived in Panama. (laughs) I did. Yeah, that's crazy. We lived on a military base back when the army had a base down there Mm -hmm. right next to the canal and lived in military housing. And our backyard was the jungle. So we had this big, huge chain link fence that would separate our yard from the jungle. And we would find holes underneath the fence and climb under and go escape and go kind of, do a bunch of adventure stuff out in the jungle. And this is, I was, I don't know, first grade, maybe. Yeah. yeah. My mom called us free range children, meaning she just kind (laughs) of let us do our thing. (laughs) Lots of stories being in the jungle of getting into trouble and swimming with crocodiles and stuff like that. Oh (laughs) my gosh.
0: We'll have to do a whole nother episode on Panama (laughs) at some point. I survived. I'm still alive.
1: (laughs) That's awesome. Okay. So when did you know you wanted to be a doctor? So in fifth grade, after school, I would go home and we had one of those big TVs that would sit on the ground Mm -hmm. with like the dials and Mm -hmm, things mm -hmm. like that. I remember. And my favorite thing was to go home and turn on this show called trauma life in the ER. I don't remember that one. I would not remember it except for it made such an impact on me, which is why I remember it. But I would remember sitting there watching like these Real ER cases kind of play out, and people would come in gunshot wounds. It was trauma. It was a trauma center, and they would show the resuscitations, yeah, yeah. the thoracotomies, just whatever. They would show it on on the screen, and I just remember just being so fascinated and kind of blown away by that. And that was my first kind of look into the world of medicine in general. And then that's when I started thinking more about going into medicine and what that might look like. I love that they
0: actually showed the real resuscitation because one of my first memories thinking about emergency medicine was the show ER. (laughs) And it's maybe not as realistic as what you're describing. (laughs) People have their like stethoscope in backwards. (laughs) They're listening to somebody and the earpieces are like around their neck. Like an NG tube or something. You're like, what is this? Yes, yes. I was still very
1: impacted by that
0: too. So is that what made you decide to go into emergency medicine
1: or did something else change later on? That was when I started thinking about medicine and in terms of kind of thinking about what I was going to do when I grew up back when I was little, my mom would always tell me you need to do something where you can support yourself and you're never going to need another person to rely on. And so always in the back of my head, I was wanting to consider things that were more kind of higher income professions Mm -hmm. because I wanted to be in a position where I wouldn't need anybody else for anything. And I could provide for my family and give them just anything they would ever ever want. And so that was when I kind of, you know, people they got being lawyers, being doctors, Mm -hmm. being sports, things like that. And so that was kind of when I narrowed it down and medicine was really interested me, but it also, I saw myself being able to establish that security and Mm kind of have that for myself and whatever family I might have one day. Um, But emergency medicine, my first exposure to medicine was with trauma. So that Mm -hmm. was kind of where my interest always was. And then in college as an undergrad, I volunteered in the emergency room. Okay, And I remember seeing my first dead body Like how did that affect you? Because you were you said you were an undergrad, right? Yeah. I was a freshman and I was volunteering in an emergency room, which basically meant nobody talked to me, nobody knew I was there. I would just kind of go around and bring people blankets and like restock shelves and like funny how you can just sort of like disappear in the ER. I mean like you know, you're
0: just just doing little tasks and observing in the background.
1: Yeah, and literally I would sneak into rooms and just stand in the corner and no one would know I was there. And I would watch all the resuscitations. I would watch kind of like a fly on the wall, mm-hmm. which it is. I mean, that's as, what you yeah, are as a student. <laughs> I like, was just a fly. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I remember walking by this room one day and kind of peeking in and, and noticing that the guy was like very pale and just like, wasn't moving. And I had like a blanket kind of up over his face. And I'm like, What's going on in there and i like kind of peeked in nobody was even in there nobody was in there i like peeked in kind of snuck in and saw him wow. and he was dead and that was the first time i ever saw a dead body and it was shocking yeah now we see dead bodies every day and yeah. we're like yeah. desensitized to it you know yeah. that was an experience for sure but anyways so i did emergency medicine volunteering as an undergrad and then fast forward to medical school it's really your third year in medical school where you really get to see kind of the different specialties. Mm -hmm. You do your rotations, you Mm -hmm. rotate through internal medicine, surgery. I did like an anesthesia rotation. You can pick different things. We did psychiatry. We just, we did pediatrics. You just kind of go through all the Mm -hmm. different rotations. And I remember hating the OR because it's freezing cold in the OR. It is so cold. That's so <laughs> true. I run kind of like I'm normally a little chilly. Yeah. And so you put me in a room that's sixty degrees all day. I was miserable. Yeah. And the other thing that I love to do besides being warm is eat and drink all day. And in the <laughs> operating room, you can't do that. No, you can't eat and drink. Yep. Like yep. now, I'll, I'll sit at work. Well, before COVID, and, and now it's starting to, you know, get kind of back to normal. But you know, you sit at work with your coffee mm-hmm. and it takes at least a couple hours to get that cup of coffee down. Yep, yep. And in the OR, you can't do that.
0: That's very true.
1: And you have to stand on your feet in one stationary position for some of these cases are six, seven, eight hours, Yeah, even I, 10, 12 hours. And you're just I standing there. I remember
0: that as a medical <laughs> student too, where you're just standing and it's like all of your bones hurt because you've been standing there for so long. <laughs> and I had an attending who told me that sitting is the new smoking. And I was just like, if that's the case, I want a cigarette so bad because I
1: just want to sit. Yeah. I
0: mean, it can be exhausting. And like you said, those cases can last forever. And you have to,
1: you have to go pee. You get hungry. You can't can't do any of those things. You just stand there. So anyways, the OR was not for me. The other thing that was not for me was clinic. Clinic is way too repetitive, mm-hmm. not exciting at all. Mm-hmm. I don't really find joy in talking to 30 patients a day each for 15 minutes about their blood pressure medication. I just don't find joy in that. My mm-hmm. new clinic was not for me. The other thing I knew that was not for me was rounding in the hospital. Yes. <laughs> so rounding <laughs> for non-medical people, you get to the hospital super, super early. You log into the computer, you check all your patients. We're talking probably like
0: four or 5am.
1: Oh, Oh, in the dark. Yeah. You're checking their labs, their imaging. You're kind of doing what we call like a pre-round on these people to kind of see how Mm -hmm. they're doing. And then once you have your data that you've collected, you go room to room and you go see the patient, you examine the patient. And this is still pre-rounding. This isn't even the rounding. This is the pre-rounding. Yeah. Yeah. So around six... You've pre-rounded on all of your patients. You've come up with plans for the patients. And then you go back around with the whole group this time, including the attending, you know, the pharmacy, the the president, everybody. And you go in and you formally round on the patients and you have to present the patient, tell everybody about their, their labs for the day, their imaging for the day, what's going on with them, what the plan is. The thing about rounding that's so terrible is you will round until probably 12 or one. By the time that you're so hungry, you think so you could die. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a snacker. I eat every hour. I have to be eating something. If I don't eat for a couple hours, I get hangry, like yes, really hangry. Yeah, yeah. I can't make it till one when I get to the hospital at 4 AM. I can't make it till one. Yeah. So you round and you round and you round, you feel like it's never going to end. And so rounding and inpatient medicine was not for me but I always knew I loved emergency medicine. So I yep. was kind of just making sure that I didn't want to do any of those other things. And I made sure that I did not want to do those other things and then fully committed to emergency medicine. I
0: think that's <laughs> such a useful exercise for medical students to hear or to like go through just because you need to take advantage of like year three and year four of medical school right. to really figure out what are things that I like? What are things that I don't like? And,
1: and I think also just saying to yourself, how do I feel on this rotation? Am I happy? Am I stressed? Am I bored? Could I see myself doing this this every day for 40 years? (laughs) years. And for all those things, my answer was I can't even do this for six weeks. So no thanks.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. So
1: you fell in love with emergency medicine. And then I guess, what is your favorite thing now about emergency medicine? I obviously love the entire field of emergency medicine. I could go on and on and list a hundred things that I love about it. One of the things that I really love about it is I feel like the kind of doctor where if something happens and somebody says, is there a doctor? You don't want a dermatologist to raise their hand. You don't want a radiologist to raise their hand. Those are doctors, but not like super practical, helpful. So I feel like in emergency medicine, we are literally trained to be able to handle anything that comes in the door. Mm -hmm. It's 3 a.m. You're the only one there. A lot of the specialists are not in the hospital overnight. So you're the only one there. And so when something comes in, you either know how to handle it or you have enough experience and kind of knowledge to figure out a plan about how to handle it. So I think that is probably one of the best parts about our field. I just feel like I can help. Like I'm always there to help no matter what, happens, people can put their trust in me. And then another thing that I thought was interesting, people will say in emergency medicine, you're like a jack of all trades, but a Mm -hmm. master of none. (laughs) But are we allowed to curse on here? No. (laughs) Go go for it. Go for it. I think that's BS. I'm not going to say that. (laughs) I think it's BS because we are masters of resuscitation, right? So think about it. You have a patient that's coming in and I I just had this the other night. So I had a guy come in with chest pain at three in the morning. And we put him. well, the tech brings me the EKG from the front lobby. Mm -hmm. I haven't even seen this guy. He just checked in. They bring me the EKG and it looks like a STEMI. And I was like, oh, okay. And STEMI basically just means heart attack. Like massive, massive, bad, badness, heart attack. Right. And so I look at the tech and I'm, I told the tech, get this guy back here, like right away. And they bring him Back to the room. I meet him in the room and I immediately start asking him, What are you feeling? Are you having chest pain? When did this start? Kind of all the questions to figure out to confirm that this really is a STEMI. Mm-hmm. And I talk to him. I decide it's the real deal. I walk out of the room and I get on the phone with the cardiologist. I'm literally dialing the phone when he codes oh, and gosh. goes into VFib, which is a cardiac arrhythmia that is not consistent with life. You mm-hmm. cannot live with v- VFib, right? So he goes into VFib and I drop the phone, run in there, and had him back within 30, I don't know, 30 seconds, a minute, defibrillated him, ran the code. And I mean, we are masters. That's what we do. Like you get a urologist, and that guy codes. What do you think the urologist is gonna do? (laughs) Might not work as well. Yeah. yeah. I'm just saying. Does the patient have a (laughs) phone? We can do resuscitation unlike anybody else. And so when people say masters of none, I just almost, I just laugh internally because I know that's not true because we can do things that probably 95% of other doctors could not do. Yeah. So there you go.
0: I think also having a really broad perspective Mm -hmm. on medicine, you know, we see everything every day from somebody who needs their toenails trimmed to <laughs> running a code. So, I mean, there's a lot that we see that, you know, you may not see in other specialties. So right. that gives us a little bit of a, a broader perspective to think about different diagnoses. But it, we do tend to think the worst first.
1: So. <laughs> so We have to. Yes, yes, yes. We have to. That People is our job. People in and they'll apologize and say, I'm so sorry. I feel like I'm wasting a bed. I shouldn't be here. And I tell them, you were worried enough to come in to be evaluated. It's my job to figure out if you have an yeah. emergency. It's not your job. Yep. It's your job to get here when you think something's wrong. It's my job to figure out what's going on. Yep. And so. Yeah. Yeah. Worst. I love we that. think of the
0: worst always. What is your least favorite thing about emergency medicine?
1: So the thing that kind of disheartens me maybe the most is dealing with the other specialists. So. In the emergency room, we are on. I mean, we'll see the patient and then we'll come back to our desk. And we spend half our time on the phone calling consultants. You know, admitting patients, telling mm-hmm. people what's going on, talk, calling family. We spend a lot of time on the phone. Yeah. And sometimes when you call a consultant and they are the specialist in that specific field. And mm-hmm. so when you have a question and you want to call them or you, you need them to help you with something or you want them to see the patient and you call them, sometimes they can be less than humble and just absolute Sometimes, sometimes. kind of angry, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we're always trying to advocate for our patients and trying to do what we think is best for them. And if I think the patient needs a cardiologist and I call a cardiologist, I don't need the cardiologist to be condescending and disrespectful towards me or talk down to me. And especially, I feel this as a younger female too. Mm -hmm. I mean, we don't get the inherent respect that a lot of other people would get, especially over the phone. Yeah, they assume they'll be like, "Oh, are you the doctor? Are -hmm. you the PA? No, no, are you the nurse?" Like you know, they just assume they're talking to a PA or a nurse, and even if you introduce yourself, you know, and so they just sometimes can be rough, rough on us. And so yeah. that can be kind of disheartening. Sometimes I just feel like people should always, I mean, just the bare minimum is do the job that you're being paid to do. Yeah. And your your job is to be on call and you're getting paid to do that. So the bare minimum is just answer the call and be on call. Yeah. You know, True. just do the yes. bare minimum yes. and I'm yes. happy. <laughs> Don't yell at me or, berate me or talk down to me or disrespect me. And, mm. and it happens. It yeah. happens. And it's probably one of the worst parts of our job, I'd say.
0: I think that's a good point that you bring up too about how much time we spend on the phone. Because I think a lot of times, especially in the emergency department, we'll see a patient and spend maybe 10 minutes if we're lucky with that patient. And so a patient thinks that we're not doing anything for them. But in reality, we're spending so much time calling different consultants, checking labs, mm-hmm. ordering labs, trying to figure out why the patient hasn't been taken to the CT scanner or why mm-hmm. this particular lab hasn't resulted yet. And so that time just adds yeah. up to like 30 minutes or an mm-hmm. hour sometimes per patient. And there goes your entire shift, like on <laughs> the phone. So-
1: yeah, there's a lot of behind the scenes. Yeah. And we get like surveys from patients that tell us about their experience and how it was. And a lot of times I'll read that patients will say, oh, well, you know, the doctor was in and out. They were only in the room for five minutes. People just don't understand. They don't know mm-hmm. kind of what goes on behind the scenes. Yeah. And I'll even tell people, and when it's I hard for out, them to know that. Yeah, like I mean, I'll less... tell them when I step out, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna step out, I'm gonna review your labs, I'm going to call the hospitalist, tell them about what's going on with you, and I'll be back in a while to see how you're doing. So you gotta just update. I just tell people kind of what's going on. Yeah, hopefully they'll. Yeah. I don't know. They'll never understand. (laughs) (laughs) They might. They might. If they listen to this podcast, now they understand. Okay.
0: (laughs) So you're basically a super mom. You had a baby during medical school and another baby shortly after residency ended. And I personally barely survived medical school without worrying about (laughs) pregnancy and preparing to be a mom. So tell us a little bit about what it was like going through pregnancy during medical school. Because again, that just, I can't imagine.
1: Well, so it was not easy (laughs) to say the least. So my husband and I, we kind of going back, we met freshman year of college. So when I was 18, I met him and we got married when I was 24 and we moved across the country and he stayed with me for medical school. Mm -hmm. And then as soon as we had kind of moved into DC, he proposed to me and we kind of did. It's almost like we were together for so long and there was like, a script of like how you're supposed Mm -hmm. to go on. Right. So like, okay, we've been together five years. Like what's the next step? Okay. We'll get married. Okay. So we go and get married. Right. And then we're back and we're like, okay, well now we're married and we've been married. Like Aren't we like supposed to have kids at some point? (laughs) Like there's just this script in your head of like how you're supposed to do things. Right.
0: That's what I've thought. And I mean, as a woman too, going through undergrad and medical school and residency, like it's a long road. And if you do want to have a family, you Mm -hmm. have to do
1: it at some point in that journey. Yeah. So it was second year of medical school and I got pregnant like towards the end and we wanted to get pregnant. Mm-hmm. We actually tried for six months to get pregnant because mm-hmm. we just knew that that was the next step. And I always tell people now, when I talk to you know younger trainees, mm-hmm. they always ask advice about this kind of stuff. And I always tell them, this is such a long road. Mm-hmm. You can't put your life on hold for yeah. the 10, 11 years, 12 years, however mm-hmm. long this is going to take. Yeah. You can't put your life on hold. You have to keep continuing to live your life and you do almost you do them in parallel, like mm-hmm. you're doing your medical career, but you're also doing your life. And so I got pregnant and I had a plan in my third year of medical school. So you have to do your rotations in third year. And so my plan was do all the hard rotations first. Mm-hmm. so that when the baby came, I had all the easy rotations. Makes but what sense. that meant is I was doing all the hard rotations when I was pregnant. Yeah. And I, I think I went out like probably just a couple days before my due date and so i was you doing surgery when you I were was pregnant, doing surgery right? and, yeah. and so that's, you're standing see, and that, for like 12 hours. <laughs> and it's funny because i think back like how we were talking about my experiences with other specialties and kind of how i picked emergency medicine looking back that probably shaped a lot of my opinion of surgery because what i remember is having a seven-month pregnant belly mm-hmm. standing on my feet for eight hours. Probably having trouble even reaching the surgical table. <laughs> I had a surgeon, no joke, write me a review saying that I was not spatially aware. And, <laughs> I, <laughs> and I just, I, I remember this to this day and I will never forget. Spatially aware, how can I be spatially aware when I have a ginormous basketball yes. sized belly that just grew over the past few months. Like, how am I aware? Like, how could I be aware of that? You I know, have to say that <laughs>
0: was one of the most surprising things to me about pregnancy was I mean, you know, you, you see women walk differently during pregnancy, but you can't fully understand why until you experience it. And it's just, your muscles don't work. Like your abdominal muscles basically don't exist. (laughs) So you can't sit down. You can't sit up. Like you have to use your arms basically to support
1: yourself when you move. And I can't believe it's like your whole center of gravity changes too. Yeah. And you can't see your feet. So how do you know, how do you know if you're going to like trip on something? You You can't can't see. Yeah. Yeah. So anyways, yeah. So I I did surgery and I did internal medicine where I was, you know, rounding. Maybe that's kind of why it's funny. I never really thought of it until just now, but it kind of shaped my opinions of those things. I'm sure it was not easy. I was on my, I mean, I would work surgery days where I would leave in the morning and come home 16, 17 hours later. Yeah. And like, can you imagine having a 17 hour day on your feet? No. You can't pee. You can't eat or drink and you know you're seven, eight months pregnant.
0: That also, I mean, not being able to pee, that just like blows my mind because I mean, it's like every 10 minutes during the
1: (laughs) Right, right. And then you feel like you just sit there in the OR and you don't want to be the one that asks to scrub out. Yeah. So you just kinda like put up with it as long as you can. So I don't know. So being pregnant during that time was hard, but when I finally had Lana it paid off because I was doing like a psychiatry rotation where Mm -hmm. I would do, I would literally work three hours a day, like five days a
0: week. Did you have time to spend with her at home before you had to go back into rotations
1: or how does that work? So I was off six weeks. Okay. That was it. They told me if I took any more time that I would have to graduate late. And Mm -hmm. it was really big for me to graduate on time. Yeah. So six weeks and i had had a c section cuz she was breech so oh six gosh. weeks with having you know a newborn baby and having abdominal surgery and trying to figure out like the nursing and mm-hmm. the pumping and like all this stuff and like being a new mom and he actually works in retail so he would work very long hours he was working like 60 hours a week oh my gosh and so we were just literally in survival mode but it's funny cuz like in the field of medicine it's just so different.
0: Yeah. You know, like, there's like not really that while we have compassion and empathy for our patients within the medical community, I feel like there's not necessarily always a lot of compassion and empathy for right. doctors as people yeah. and recognizing that we have lives and things outside yeah. of medicine. And that can be really tough. Sometimes
1: it's almost like a stigma that if you are a doctor and you prioritize anything else in your life that you're you're just not a good doctor like you're yeah. not you're not as good you know yeah. it's or true. like how dare you be at work and take a call from your daughter before right. she goes to bed yeah. you know yeah yeah
0: like it's hard for sure yeah. and I am still in awe of you for going through <laughs> all of that and then I mean beyond pregnancy and medical school you also had your family to balance during residency like you have a daughter and a husband and so what I guess is one tip that you can give on how to survive residency, particularly for people who have kids?
1: Oh, my goodness. It's interesting because medical school is hard, but residency is, has been the hardest three years of my life, like for sure, hands down, like the hardest. And other people will say sometimes that, you know, going through medical school is harder. But when you have a family and you have a, a small child, I mean, residency is not easy. The biggest things that helped were number one, having my husband being so supportive. Mm-hmm. He would tell me, go to work, give it 110%. If, you're, if you stay late, that's fine. I want you to stay late. Like just do what you have to do. There would be nights where I would work till, I don't know, midnight in the ER. And then we'd have conference next day mm-hmm. at like seven. I live pretty far from residency. It was It was probably a 45 minute drive yeah. each way. And the reason we live so Buster far is traffic. <laughs> yeah. We live so far away because we wanted to be in a community with, mm-hmm. you know, other kids. And, yeah. and it was for our family that we lived down here. But I would sleep in the call room, you know, those nights. Mm-hmm. And he would tell me, you know, do what you have to do. Like if you're tired, like if you work all night and you're tired, go to the call room and sleep for a couple hours and then come home. Yeah. He was always telling me, do what you need to do. Everything's fine here. You don't need to worry. Everything is fine. Lana's fine. I'm fine. You do what you need to do. And so there's always that mom guilt. Like that's a super real thing. Yeah, for sure. You always feel guilty kind of about doing that. But he was just so supportive. And then also um, his parents live in town. And so we relied on them a lot. We use them a lot to help us, mm-hmm. which was... So that's another thing is living by family, living by friends, people that you are close to that you trust. Yeah. It really takes a village, you know? It really does. Yeah. I honestly... I don't think I
0: could have survived residency without my husband, my family, my friends, you guys, my Mm. co-residents. I guess we didn't say that. (laughs) Dr. (laughs) Dahl and I went to residency together. (laughs) I mean, like you said, it takes a village to kind of get everybody through because it's so tough and you're working all the time. and. I didn't have kids at the time, but I would go days without seeing my husband mm-hmm. just if our schedules didn't align, which yeah. it's really hard to align schedules when you're on a 36-hour shift. So
1: yeah, exactly. <laughs> that, that's another thing. Like You would go on a 36-hour call and he was always like, everything's fine. Here. Yeah. You don't need to worry. Everything's yep. fine here. Do what you have to do. <laughs> and to be honest, it's just a blur. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I agree. You're like just in survival mode. Yeah. Make it through the day and then repeat that every day for three years. Yeah. And then you've survived hopefully. Yeah. And there there you go. I guess the best lesson
0: from this is that to find people who you know and love who can help you and support you. Mm -hmm. And for a lot of people, I mean, having family close by, I think really can help, especially if you have kids and Like you said, the hours can be so unpredictable. It's so valuable to have somebody there where it's okay if you're an hour too late because that happened so often.
1: Oh, all the time. You never get out on time.
0: No, never. On time is just like the time when you stop seeing patients. And then after that, you have (laughs) even that doesn't doesn't count. Even that doesn't count. You're
1: supposed to not see patients, you know, your last hour. But if somebody comes in five minutes before your shift ends and they need help, you help them and then you stay two hours late, you know, that's just kind of, that's just kind of the nature of what we do. And we also should say we're (laughs) in the name of balance
0: recording outside. So we've had some, some crows as visitors and some other, (laughs) some
1: some little kids running by. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Okay. So then residency ended, you were finally able to spend more time with your family and you guys decided to have another baby. And then the pandemic hit. So tell me a little bit about what it was like being a pregnant emergency physician in the middle of the pandemic. Because as I recall, you were actually pregnant really in like the worst part of it. You were at the very end of your pregnancy.
1: Yeah. So I got pregnant, was it September or October of 2019? And then 2020, March, 2020, Ryan and I were actually on a little baby moon down in Mexico. I was maybe, I don't know, six months pregnant or something mm-hmm. like that. We were in Mexico enjoying a week just together. And I remember watching on the news and hearing about COVID and the pandemic. And but it wasn't a pandemic then. It was yeah. kind of like it was just so early. They were talking about it being in other countries. Mm-hmm. And then they started talking about, oh, there's been like a couple of cases here in the US. Mm-hmm. It's like, you had no idea at that time, like what it was going to turn yeah. into. You hear like news stories all the time. And then a week later they're onto the next thing and it just fizzles out, but this didn't fizzle, it just grew. Yeah. And so I was like, what, six months pregnant. We get on a plane, we come back to the States. And then within like a week or two, everything shuts down. And I was just grateful that we had made it home, that yeah. we weren't like... In Mexico, when that had happened, because yeah. that's very scary, obviously. Getting stuck on
0: vacation, though, you know, not too. <laughs> much. No, but then we have our daughter <laughs> yes, at home, yes, 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 who my yes, in-laws yes. are
1: watching, yeah, yeah. and people were getting stuck out of the country for months. Yeah,
0: that's you true. Know? Yeah, that's kind and of so
1: scary. we get back, everything shuts down. I remember driving to work for what was it, two weeks straight, where there was not another car on the road, and we would sit at work and there was no patience. There was nobody. It was just like the world shut down. Obviously, everybody remembers that. I loved not having
0: traffic. That was great.
1: Oh, it was so nice. Yeah, (laughs) it was so nice. Um, I'd get to work in like 10 minutes. I'm like, yeah, this is great. I actually remember (laughs) seeing
0: a photo of you. It was close to the end of your pregnancy, probably like eight or nine months. And you had the full (laughs) Papper, which basically it's like a clean air device that it looks like a space helmet. It
1: is. It's a space helmet. You can't. Um, you can't hear anything you can't hear hear because all you have is wind and air rushing by your ears it's like a a positive pressure Mm -hmm. type of of, you know ventilation system and so it just pushes the air out I remember running codes in a full pepper intubating patients in the pepper which wasn't even the hardest part the hardest part is how do you work as a team yeah. in resuscitations when you can't talk? You can't yeah. hear each other. We literally would be all in Pappers and we would be like grabbing each yes. other to like, yes. Hey, look at this or like mm-hmm. trying to, you know, non-verbally communicate, like yeah. trying to get people's attention. You're like running codes and you guys can't communicate. It was it, really it was challenging. Weird. Yeah, it, Cause I mean, then you're just like, you're trying
0: to order epinephrine or, you know, anything yeah. and you weren't if you aren't specifically looking at them when they give it then yeah, you yeah. don't know how long it's been you have and, to like
1: flag them down yeah. and and then so add yeah. a 8 <laughs> month pregnant belly to that. <laughs> yeah i i remember intubating with you know this big belly and and the gurney you know you want the patient up as close to you as possible i would like be bending over like intubating oh my like having to like adjust everything yeah. because it's you know just a big thing that's in your way that you have to work around but anyway so all of the PPE was hard when you're pregnant. I remember almost throwing up so many yeah. times. Yeah, so you it's just hot, it gets hot. You feel like you're rebreathing the same air for ten hours because basically you are. Mm-hmm. I wasn't drinking enough water. I was getting dehydrated, like you mm-hmm. know, yeah. Being pregnant, you need to drink water like all day. Mm-hmm. I was getting dehydrated. Yeah. My blood sugar was dropping at times, so I wasn't eating. Mm-hmm. It was just kind of its own set of. Of, uh, a difficult set of challenges, but I think the other thing that was like it wasn't just the physical aspect, it was also kind of more of the emotional like just being scared Isolation. well, and just being scared because yeah. thinking the worst that's what we do right, we right think the worst, yeah. so I'm thinking you know we're hearing all these things about if pregnant women get it, they're dying, like yeah. they're getting so they're sick. they're getting a lot sicker, they're getting a lot sicker, and so I'm just thinking to myself like great. And this is my job. I'm doing this every day. Yeah. And if I get it, which I thought for sure I was going to, it's like, if I get this in my head, I'm like, I spiral. I think like, okay, I'm going to get intubated. I hope they just take the baby out. If, if yeah. I'm, you know, like on event for three, four weeks, like just make sure my baby's okay, yeah. you know, and yeah. just make sure, you know, I just want my family to be okay. Yeah. Like literally I I would have thoughts of like, being intubated for three weeks and having a baby removed from me and then me dying. Yeah. Like the worst goes through your mind. Absolutely. And then thinking like, well, what if I get it and I'm okay, but then when I have him is if there's any problems with him, like we didn't know how the virus would, you know, affect people's bodies and babies. And so I was just always like kind of worried internally about it. But funny. you can't really show it well, either. That's the thing. Yeah. So it was funny because every day I just go to work and I focus on my work and I do my job and I don't really think too much about it, but I would have nightmares at mm-hmm. night about it. Yeah. And that's when you know that something's really affecting you. And maybe you don't take the time to reflect on the fact that it's really affecting you. But when you're having nightmares about something like every night, mm-hmm. it's taking a toll on you, yeah. you know? Yeah. So that was...
0: I think that's something yeah. about emergency medicine where it's... We are literally trained to be able to see these terrible things and then turn around and the next second just keep going without Mm -hmm. taking the time to process those things internally. And I think it became such a high risk job in the pandemic. And then adding on top of that, a pregnancy, there's just so much that goes through your mind. And it's so emotionally and mentally stressful that I mean, it definitely weighs on you and it can definitely compound over time. Mm -hmm. But I think that's just another one of the reasons I'm so impressed with you and your ability to just sort of process these things and handle them. And I've seen you do that over and over and over, over the years that I've known you. And so I just want you to know that. Oh, you're so (laughs) sweet. Thanks. So we are talking about balance. And so I think a lot of the lessons regarding balance apply to almost any job or career path. So do you have any examples of how you're able to maintain balance in your life between work and family and yourself? Because Mm -hmm. as we just discussed... We yeah. do have to pay attention to self-care too.
1: Right, so in terms of balance, people always say, oh, you do it all. Like you, you have it all, you can do it all. I don't think you ever do it all. Like you can't do it all. Mm-hmm. I think of kind of my life and I think of everything as like a pie, right? Mm-hmm. So you're only one pie. You're not five pies, you're only one pie. <laughs> so you have one pie to divide up And I think that's how you create balance. So you Mm -hmm. divide the pie to give enough time for all these different things, right? So your husband and your marriage, your kids and both your kids, they each need their own time too. You can't, you have to take them out, you know, do things with one, do things with the other. You need time for yourself. You need time for your work. So you have to divide that pie up for all of these different things. And the division is always changing. Like Mm -hmm. it always changes. Like sometimes you feel like, man, I feel right now that my husband and I really haven't been spending enough time together. Mm -hmm. And then you make a change. Okay, well, what am I going to take away from to add in more time for Mm -hmm. that? And so every week or month, you have to kind of like reassess how you're feeling. What do you wish you had more time for? And then, you know, you can kind of adjust accordingly. And so... You just kind of shift and do that. I think that's such a good point that you make about
0: shifting between like the pie slices yeah. because you can dedicate a bunch of time to one person or one activity at one point, but you can't give that much time to everything that you're doing. And right. so being able to shift between mm-hmm. where you're needed. I mean, I guess it comes down to sort of triage. Also, Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. like
1: life thinking, triage. thinking about what your priorities are like for me. I don't have a lot of time for personal relationships and friends per se, but some months I'll be like, you know what? I really miss my friends and I haven't seen them. And I'll text you and say, hey, let's set a date and let's go. Even if we meet up one time every four months. Yeah. Yeah. I can do that with you. And then I can text my other friend, you know, and say, hey, let's get something on the calendar. Let's meet up. Because I feel like sometimes that's probably one of the things that I wish I could have more time with yeah. that I just don't And so I try to like prioritize that some months and just try to reach out to people. And if it's on the calendar, it's going to happen. So it just needs to make That's, it onto the calendar. Yes. <laughs> yes. I live by the calendar. Yes. I live by this schedule, which is funny because someone will ask me, oh, when do you work tomorrow? I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know when I work tomorrow. I have to look at <laughs> but it every on my night calendar. <laughs> before I go to bed, I review what's happening yes. the next day. Yes. But if it's on the calendar, it's going to happen. Yes. So
0: you're I, also queen of the doodle poll. <laughs> you're so
1: good at that. Well, I don't know. I just and that's another thing. Like that's me trying to prioritize more meeting up with friends uh, and doing things with friends. It's easy to just not the day is just so busy. Yeah, but when I feel like sometimes I'll just feel to myself, man, I just wish I could get together with my friends more. That's when I'll send yeah. out a doodle. I'm yeah, like, yeah. Hey, everybody, let's pick a date.
0: Okay. Do you have any advice for anyone who's struggling to find or maintain balance in life right now? I
1: mean, I think just think about your priorities. Yeah. So think about the pie, think of all the things that you have to do. And then which part of the pie do you want to be the most yeah. and do it for a month. And if you look back in the month and you're like, man, I really feel like I worked too much and I didn't spend enough time with my husband or significant mm-hmm. other, you can shift. Okay, well, I'm gonna pick up less shifts next month and those shifts that I would have been working, let's go out and do dates. I love so that. like Ryan and I, we work opposite schedules. In this whole month, we only have three days off together. Oh my gosh. This whole month. I have the day on the calendar blocked mm-hmm. off. Those are our days that we're gonna do. We do lunch dates. Mm-hmm. So we'll just you know get the kids off to school and daycare We'll come home, get ready. We'll go out. We'll go to San Clemente. We'll eat pizza and drink beer and hit up a winery and then come home and pick up the kids and then do the family thing. That's awesome. So just, I think for me, I have to be very organized and I have to have things on the calendar and on Mm -hmm. the schedule. So I schedule ahead of time. That's the day that Ryan and I are going to go out. So if you feel like you're not having enough time with your significant other, pick a day put it on the calendar. Schedule. I know. Yeah. I know it sounds so, I don't know, like forced. I think it sounds you, awesome because it's that, like,
0: it's prioritizing. Yes. So and I, if it's written down, it's a lot harder to not do it.
1: Exactly. So I, I'll look in the calendar for the next day and Oh, Ryan and I are both off. Okay. W- and I'll talk to him. Where do you want to go? What do you want to do? What do you want to eat? I don't know. We have the whole day, yeah. like the whole day to just do whatever we want. Yeah. Go to the beach, whatever. That's another Um, great
0: thing about shift work and emergency medicine is you can have a random Wednesday that you're
1: just not working and make it a fun day. Yes, yes, exactly. So I think, yeah, the tip there would be just to schedule, just schedule it, schedule a date night, schedule, and if it's on the calendar, it has a higher likelihood of happening than if it's not
0: on the calendar. (laughs) All right. Any final words of wisdom before we wrap this up?
1: Just think to yourself, like, what do you think is missing in your life? What do you wish you could do more of? And then do it. Yeah. So like, if you want to travel more, like I'm not a, a huge traveler. I know you are. And you and know. other people are. Sometimes I'll just feel, huh, we should go on a little family trip. Yeah. And I'll just book it and I'll put it on the calendar and it'll be in two months. So whatever you feel like you want to do more of, just kind of put it on the calendar and make it happen that's so true.
0: Yeah. On I think what you feel like you're missing. That's especially true after the last year, I guess two years now where it's like, we haven't been able to do as much mm-hmm. to really think about those things that matter and make sure that we're not continuing to just put them off for another yeah. time. Yeah. Cause that's another thing we do in medicine mm-hmm. where we're like, Oh, once I get out of medical school, once I get out of residency, <laughs> once I like meet so-and-so goal, then I'll have the free time to yeah. like do these things. Yeah. And, I think it's really important, like you said before, not to put things off and to live your life.
1: Yeah. Live Um, your life. Yeah, You can do it all. You just have to put it on the calendar and make your pie, (laughs) make your pie, pie. figure out, figure out your pie, you know, your slices.
0: All right. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Doll. Of
1: course. Anytime. Thanks for having me.
0: That's it for this episode. If you like what you hear, please give us a five-star rating, subscribe, or send this episode to someone, you know, who might enjoy it. Feel free to connect with us on our website, theemergencydocs.com or Instagram at theemergencydocs. Until next time.
1: Oh, 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 oh,